This week's episode of the Villain News Podcast brought to us by our good friends at Feedback Sports, makers of some of the most innovative tools and training accessories, bike stands, all sorts of good stuff. If you've been to a bike race, you've probably seen someone warming up on a Feedback Sports trainer using a Feedback Sports bike rack, something like this. Right now, Feedback Sports, so they have a brand new tool. It's called the Range. It's a torque wrench ratchet combo. It has the precision of a flex bar torque wrench to a ratchet in a single tool and adds a modern take on the housing. You know what? I'm not an expert to talk about this. So I've brought on Dan Cavallari, our tech editor. Dan, we haven't seen this tool yet, but what are the advantages of having these features in your torque wrench? Well, first of all, everybody should have a torque wrench in their toolkit, especially if you own anything carbon. And what's really cool about the range is that it is a torque wrench and a ratchet combo. Uh, combo. So in other words, you can actually turn uh, in both directions without ruining your torque setting. Most torque wrenches only turn in one direction. If you turn it the other way, you're really messing with your torque setting. In this one, you can use it in both directions. So you don't have to carry a whole separate set of, uh, of Allen keys uh, just to loosen bolts and parts. You can actually use this for, for tightening and loosening. And when you're on the trail and you're tightening that piece of carbon and you just want to give it the He-Man torque to mm -hmm. see how mm -hmm. strong you can get it, yeah. you don't have to do that with no. this. Well, thanks to our friends at Feedback Sports. Let's get on with the show. It's the Velo News Podcast. I am Fred Dreyer. I'm in the basement of the Velo News World Headquarters. In the usual uh, Velo News podcast studio, joined by Spencer Paulison, news director, Velo News. Spencer. Hey, Fred. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. You're going to get back to uh, pro racing discussion this week after our Dirty Kanza extravaganza. Wait, that, those guys aren't getting paid to do that? No, sorry. They sure act like it. Mid-pack <laughs> Mid finisher at Dirty Kanza. Just kidding. We Didn't get we, paid. We love Dirty Kanza. We love the gravel scene. We'll be back. I'm still buzzing about Dirty Kanza. We're going to do it on a tandem next year, right? Yeah, you and me. Um, I'm going to be uh, on the back not pedaling, though. I'll just be resting. Doing the Pee Wee Herman? Yeah. I'll be like reading uh, old issues of Vela News to you to keep you motivated. That should be thrilling. Well, and <clears> since <throat> we're getting back to pro racing, we're joined by Andrew Hood, our European correspondent. Andy, coming to us from the man cave in Spain. The hombre cave. Hoodie, are, are you fully recovered from the Giro? It's been a couple weeks. I know that, you know, you got to have like icing your legs and elevating your legs and eating lots of protein and carbohydrates. Cryotherapy. Like, yeah. How are you, how are you feeling? Indeed. It, it's a, it's a tougher recovery after the Giro fellas. Uh, you know, you got to really hit the sweat box actually after a month of gelato and pizza and pasta. It's kind of a rough, rough beat. <laughs> yeah. That sounds awful. Um, yeah. So are you, are you like, you having to detox then? Are you doing any strange cleanses maybe to just get it all out of your system? Yeah. Just trying to, uh, hit the old keto diet, uh, get off beer for a few days, do a lot of writing, uh, trying to get de-inflated as my wife calls it, uh, you know, get, uh, you know, get down to the tour, tour, tour skinny before, before July starts. Fighting weight. Yeah. yeah. Um, and just get a little, uh, you know, eat some bad, uh, Eat a bad peach or something, and that'll take care of you, I think. Well, and then you can get right back to eating all of that heavy French food in another month or so. So on today's podcast, we're going to talk about the two major races that have been going on during this period, and that being the Tour de Suisse and the Criterium du Dauphiné. Uh, in the second part of the show, we're going to be joined by Dan Cavallari to talk about the, the the controversy involving leg gel. What, Aerogel. What the what is this? Aerogel. Before we before we talk, have a long discussion about that, Spencer. Give me the primer. What the, what the heck is aerogel? Right. So we had a story Monday, Valonews.com, courtesy of our own Gregor Brown. Uh, he had a report uh, that is about the Lotto Sudal team. And do you remember they had a pretty good team time trial performance in the Dauphiné? You remember that? Like, uh, yeah. Like kind of swinging above their weight. Uh-huh. Well, you know what the secret there? Success is it's this wacky gel that they like apply to their legs and it makes them more aerodynamic apparently. And of course, UCI gets wind of this and they're like, no, no. None. Christophe Perrault, he says, no. 
and uh, you can't use the aerogel anymore, they said. So going forward, no more aerogel, and Lotto Sudal will return to being the basement dwellers of uh, Team Time Trials. More rules. That's what will make cycling better. Yeah. Let's, let's make everything illegal. You know, I have lots of questions for Dan. We'll get to it. But I just wonder, can you, like, shave your face with aerogel? You know, like, if I was stranded in a hotel <laughs> and I didn't have my shaving cream, but I had the aerogel, would that work? I usually use conditioner in that type of situation, but sure, maybe. Oh, so that explains all those nicks and cuts on oh, your Yeah, thanks. Okay. Okay. All right, guys, let's get to it. Uh, Dauphiné, first of all, Criterium de Dauphiné versus Tour de Suisse as a viewer of bicycle racing. Which do you prefer? Hoodie, we'll start with you. Uh, aesthetically, I, I mean, the Tour de Suisse is a beautiful race. It's, a, it's almost a standalone event. It's considered like the fourth grand tour. Uh, has its own history, its own feel to it. But in terms of uh, more punch for for kilometer, you got to go with the Dauphiné. It's in France. It's in the French Alps. It's the big Tour de France warm up. I'm a Dauphiné guy. I agree with Hoodie on that one. It's um, for those points he made, but also for, I would add that the the mountain climbs they have in Tour de Suisse they just tend to be less exciting to to race on. You don't have the same sort of kind of steep pitches that encourage the the pure climbers to attack tour de suisse roads they tend to be kind of engineered and very swiss you know they're very gradual they go up into the mountains yeah and it uh it means that it's kind of you just motor along at your steady pace and uh you know it, it, it's not easy obviously but i i don't think it provokes the same sort of racing action that you usually see but this year is so different because the dauphine is so much earlier and We'll get into that later, but we'll see what happens in the Tour de Suisse. But Nairo Quintana there, maybe he'll uh, prove me wrong. I hope he does with some uh, with some attacks in those mountains, in the Swiss mountains. Yeah, I believe the uh, conundrum you were talking about there is the Simon Spielak conundrum, which is the <laughs> long, grinding climbs where there's not a ton of attacks or a ton of uh, compelling action to watch, and Simon Spielak just kind of rides away. Yeah, it's kind of from thing. everyone. Why is that? So I'm with you too. I mean, Dauphiné is usually the far better race than the Tour de Suisse. The Tour de Suisse, when I think about it, I think about long crushing climbs. I also think about awful weather. Rain. Yeah. yeah. Just people getting pneumonia and totally um, ruining their Tour de France by getting some terrible bug by riding 200Ks in a rainstorm. Big cowbells. Yeah. That too. Big cowbell. Nice the, scenery. The thing about the Dauphiné is that the Dauphiné has, the last few years, always been where the hitters come out, mm. you know, because it is a week earlier. The conventional wisdom is that you can use this as your race to sharpen the spear for the Tour de France, where the Dauphiné, it's long, it's hard, you're going to get sick, and then it's a week later. There's always the fear that you might ruin your tour by going to the Tour de Suisse, so guys stayed away. But as we're going to get to, that dynamic has been completely upended this year because of our good friends at FIFA. Hello, lads. Ugh. Care for a bit of footy? Soccer. Is that still right. a sport? Are they still doing that? Our friends at FIFA have the World Cup coming up this year. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's the world's <laughs> largest sporting event. Ah. And because of that, the organizers of the Tour de France decided to start the race a week late. So the tour this year is not starting until, I believe, July 7th, when historically it's like July 2nd, July 3rd, around then. And that has completely upended the dynamics at Tour de Suisse and the Dauphiné, because we actually have hitters, bona fide Tour de France level, heavy hitters like Nairo Quintana going to the Tour de Suisse and the Dauphiné this year, by contrast, I mean, I wouldn't call these guys tomato cans, but not exactly the strongest of the strong. So, Hoodie, we just had the Dauphiné finish up. Garen Thomas won the overall. Time, Team Sky, you know, we could say they dominated the race. Uh, you think? What are the storylines that emerged from the Dauphiné to carry us into the tour? What did you see at the Dauphiné that makes you interested for what we could see at the Tour de France? Well, the first takeaway from the Dauphiné for me is that team time trials are a race life sucker. Mm. We saw the team time trial at the Dauphiné suck the life out of the Dauphiné, gave Team Sky a minute to Mitchelton Scott, one and a half minutes and plus to everybody else of the main GC contenders for the Dauphiné. 
So in a week-long stage race, having a big, long 35-kilometer team time trial in the Dauphiné just really sucked the air out of the GC uh, fight because we had actually had some pretty good quality riders at the Dauphiné and what could have been set up to be a pretty good race, really, because you had those four stages across the Alps to, to conclude the race. You had two really kind of short stages, really, kind of one of these like uh, – these like uh, Formigal-type stages, we're going to see those in the Tour de France again this summer. So a lot of these ideas that the Tour likes to roll out at the Dauphiné that we later see in the Tour de France. But we saw the team time trial really mark the race. And I'm kind of afraid the same thing might happen this summer in the Tour de France. We shall see. Well, and of course, the Tour de Suisse starts with a team time trial. It happened on uh, whatever, Saturday, I think, was the first stage. And it's... Uh, Hey, that's a great way to start a race now, isn't it? If only ASO could retroactively or could like um, amend the Tour de France route based on what goes on at the Dauphiné. And so they're like, oh, the team time trial was uh, too important. We are dropping 10 kilometers from the Tour de France team time trial. Sorry, Team Sky. Ooh, or here's an alternate idea. Rethink the way a team time trial is raced. And instead of having everybody draft each other, you just have each rider do like 5K of the route and then they hand off it to each other like Madison style, huh. get them into the race. On, you know, on time trial bikes, of course, so the Madison Sling on time trial bikes, that's going to be awesome to watch. Uh, and uh, maybe make it draft legal, too. So why not? Just has, l- let's let's blow up the team time trial concept. Has Velon done that already? They, Is that the, the next event of the Hammer series? That might have happened at the Hammer Stavanger <laughs> stop because I literally did not watch any of that. I know. So I don't even Ooh, know. Bad scheduling on that one. Yeah. Uh, Hoodie, what else? Uh, you know, Garrett Thomas had a pretty dominating win because of that team time trial. What does this uh, show at the Dauphiné make us think about Garrett Thomas and his potential to be Team Sky's main man for July? Main man, we don't think that's probably in the cards for Garrett Thomas. I mean, Garrett, great guy. He, he, this is his biggest win of his career. A quality rider who's been a loyal team player to Froome been kind of a team sky franchise rider one of the first guys that joined the team he's been with him this whole career he started at Berlin world as well but uh you know garrett thomas still has not finished off a tour de france even within striking distance of the podium um he's kind of uh, team sky's plan b after he wins the dauphine kind of as a backup card to play if the rails go off the Froome train just in case the scenario of perhaps Froome's not racing the tour or if Froome gets zoomed in the first half of the tour, doesn't even make it to the mountains like what happened in 2014. They want to have another guy that they could count on to be there just in case Froome doesn't make it to the mountains. So in that sense, big success for Thomas, big success for Team Sky this past week. But is he at that caliber to to replace or usurp Froome's uh, tour king role? Uh, He's far from that. I agree with Hoodie, and um, also very disappointed, Hoodie, that you didn't use your awesome headline uh, of him calling him Plan G instead of Plan B, which is pretty apt if you think about it, because, I mean, he's certainly not a Plan B in my eyes as far as a true GC contender. But, uh, yeah, you move your way down the alphabet, and he's probably around G, I'd say, I'd say as far as his potential to win a Grand Tour. He's just never he's never going to win a Grand Tour. Get out of town. Come on. Wow. He's not going to win a Grand Tour. He's a great time trialist. He can, run, he can win a one-day race. I'm sure he could win a week-long race. He's proven that, of course, already. Uh, come on. A, a Grand Tour, he's just it's not going to happen. I disagree with you both because I think that Team Sky could will him to a Grand Tour lead. And by will him, I mean crush everyone else's will with Team time with team Sky tactics on long crushing climbs. Oh, I thought you meant something else like uh, after, yeah. after hours type thing. I, you know, Thomas, chapeau to him. He he won it. He had the strongest team. He had the strongest legs. I was hoping for a little bit more out of Kwiatkowski. You know, he was the first yellow jersey wearer and lost it in a really bizarre crash, I believe, on the second stage. The Peloton's rumbling into the finish. They go around a roundabout, and coming out of the roundabout, there's only one rider on the ground afterwards, and it happens to be the yellow jersey. I was like, what the heck happened? Did, did somebody throw a potato at him or something like that? Was that was weird. I mean, he's ordinarily a very good bike handler. I can't, yep. can't really explain that one. In terms of Thomas as a grand tour threat, I mean, it's so hard to know because we haven't really seen him get to week three as in, you know, still being in a in a leadership role or in a contention role. I mean, he's gone to the Giro though and tried to be the leader and yeah. crashed out and had problems and stuff. It's 
I'm I'm hopeful. I say he can do it. Bah, come on. Um, what do we make of the rides by Dan Martin and Adam Yates? Both of these guys won stages. They didn't factor into the overall, but you know, they looked like they were sharpening the spear. Hoodie, should we be keeping our eyes on Dan Martin after his stage win at the Dauphiné? Oh, most definitely. He, both he and Adam Yates um, performed very well at the Dauphiné, as you mentioned, both won stages. You know, these guys are becoming, will be coming to the tour really riding for the podium. I think it's going to be, just like everyone else, that team time trial on stage three of the tour, and plus that first brutal week is just going to really kind of set up the tour once we roll out that stage over the cobbles to Rope. Uh, Adam Yates, you know, he's, he's a guy that, that's already been close to the podium. He's a guy that's proven he can go the distance. It's quite something else, which his brother, his brother discovered this in the Giro d'Italia. It's one thing to be following the wheels, kind of staying close to the top guys, you know, riding into that top five, that top eight of the Grand Tour. And it's quite something else trying to be really that front guy and defending it day in, day out, attacking winning stages, defending leaders' jersey. You eventually run out of gas. That's where guys like the Frooms, the Nairo Quintanas, the Nibalis, that's how those guys win the Grand Tours. They can just go for three weeks and never crack. That's the difference between a big Grand Tour winner and all these podium contenders. I think Dan Martin and Adam Yates are kind of right at that cusp of being close to those podium, and these two stage wins show that those guys are ready for the Tour. So since you brought up the Giro, I have to ask, is the Tour de France more of a climber's race than the Giro this year? Because, I mean, the Giro, clearly, uh, you know, the, it was one on the climbs, the time trial. It wasn't a huge difference maker when it came to the overall GC. The Jerusalem time trial, too short to make a difference. Uh, obviously, team time trial early on in the Tour. But are we? Uh, is, this, is this even more favorable for someone like Dan Martin or Adam Yates versus a... Uh, Versus a Chris Froome type or, or someone who's got a little more equipment for a, for a team, time, team time trial or a time trial? I have no idea. I mean, I, I, you know, I think the Giro is much more of a climber's race this year just with that third week. Sure. Um, but if you think about the final week of the tour, there's definitely some hard climbs there too. Yeah, and there's Alpe d'Huez and there's, um, you know, the 65-kilometer stage in the Pyrenees that may give these guys some, uh, some hope. So, you know, Dan Martin, we've seen him excel on these punchy shorter climbs. I think that, um, he is getting to the point where he can be a factor on the longer climbs. You know, he motored away from Garrett Thomas pretty good. Looks like he was in the big ring, looked like it was kind of a real power effort. So I think that that shows some signs for him with Adam Yates. I just wonder, you know, like journalists have asked both Simon and Adam about each other and how they measure themselves up to each other. And they've always kind of poo-pooed those questions and said, no, we don't do that. That's silly. You know, come on, we're professionals. And I trust them on that. But you do have to wonder if he saw the success of his brother and going out to that early lead in Giro and seeing where he is in his development and wondering if he could possibly do something like that at the Tour de France. I dream of a day when the two, the two of them are on different teams and you see them go head-to-head in the Tour de France. How cool would that be? Two twins racing against each other Tour de France? That'd be amazing. <laughs> uh, another storyline that came out of the Dauphiné was this battle between AG2R and Roman Bardet versus Team Sky because on the final day, uh, Garrett Thomas had a puncture. I believe it was 40 kilometers from the finish. And uh, Bardet and AG2R, Ajay Duzer, continued to just hammer it on the front. And Thomas eventually got back, but he had to work pretty hard to do it. And to me, it brought back memories of, I believe it was stage 13 at the Tour de France last year when Froome had to have a wheel change and uh, Bardet had his men totally crunch it on the front and Froome had to just bury himself to get back. Hoodie, what do you make of this? Should they have uh, waited and popped out the sandwiches and, you know, just hung out on the side of the road to wait for Garen Thomas to catch back on? Or was it game on? I think it was game on. I mean, this is a, a big boy sport. It's not a sportif. I mean, they're racing to win. <laughs> and Bardet was out there. They were trying to get the stage win yesterday. There was a break up the road. You know, it, it often comes down. We saw the break yesterday get caught in the last 50 meters of the race. So you're not going to just sit up and let breakaway gain even more time, especially in the crunch time of, of a major race, when somebody has a puncture. Punctures are part of racing. AG2R was already riding at the front when that happened. Even though it's the yellow jersey, you don't sit up 
when it's game on in a race. Okay, if it's if it's uh, in the first fifty k's of a race of a flat stage and not too much is going on, sure you can kind of do the nice thing. But in a situation like that, it's game on, and I don't think this this debate of weight or race is is it's getting old, Fred. It's getting old. Didn't AG2R pull this kind of move during the tour last year when Froome had a mechanical or a flat or something like midway through the race? This is totally like deja vu for me. Yeah. Very French of them. Oh, we will sneak it in. Yeah, I disagree with you, Hoodie. I think that the riders from AG2R should have dismounted their bikes, stood on the side of the road, had a soda, um, maybe signed some autographs, um, and just waited for Garrett Thomas to get a new wheel. Or have a little water bottle fight. Yeah. A little, like, squirting. You know. Totally, like a, like a water fight from, yeah. from Zoolander. Or, or, well, they did that in, uh, in uh, what is it, no, not Breaking Away, the other the other one. They should have, yeah. they just should have waited off the bikes, maybe taken a nap. Yeah, of course not. Very gentlemanly. I know. Keep racing. Ah, race it. I think that I I think that everyone understands that at this point now that only in the most ridiculous, you know, extreme extenuating circumstances should you wait. So I think Garrett Thomas had some choice words in the media afterwards saying something like, Boo-hoo. "I will. I'm not gonna. Uh, you know, I'm not gonna remember this, but I also won't forget it." Type thing. So maybe that is going to be cycling's version of like, you know, the NFL when there's like a cheap hit or something like that, and it's part of the game, doesn't get called, but the guys are like, happens all the time in hockey. Yeah, they remember it. Stanley Cup just wrapped up, and I'm, I got hockey on the brain, and oh yeah. They don't. They don't mess around. If you do something like that, you'll get. They'll serve up some act right. That's for sure. So this is cycling's version of the cross check that doesn't get called. Um, moving on to the Tour de Suisse, we've seen two stages up to this. Three stages up to this point. There's a team time trial won by BMC. Peter Sagan won a sprint stage. Sonny Colbrelli won a sprint stage. That was a close one. Both of those are really close ones. Uh, Hoodie, we have Peter Sagan going up against Fernando Gaviria at this race and Sagan beats Gaviria, which is pretty interesting because of the tour of California a couple weeks ago, Gaviria was noticeably faster than uh, everybody. What does this tell us about Peter Sagan? It tells us that uh, Peter the Great is getting ready for his next big peak of the season, which is the Tour de France. He will go back to the tour at a complete uh, revenge tour, you know, after last year's controversial expulsion. I think Sagan's going to come back to the tour ready to shred. And I think we'll see Sagan perhaps have his best tour ever. The huge win of the Perry Roubaix sets him up to go back to the tour, win that green jersey. Just that first week is made for Roubaix. I mean, excuse me, that first week is made for Sagan with all this different kind of terrain, different kind of stages, sprint stages, kind of punchy finishes, pave stages. That's Sagan country. I think he's going to win more stages than he's ever won on a Tour de France. I will also say about that Tour de Suisse stage specifically, uh, it was a circuit around the Finnish town, basically four circuits, four times up category three climb, which isn't like crazy hard to do if you're one of these top sprinters, but I give the edge to Sagan in a race like that versus Gaviria on a pan flat sprint finale. So in some ways, kind of to be expected, but let's hope so. That'd be pretty killer if Sagan had a big tour. About time. I'm just ready to see Sagan versus Gaviria um, really come to fruition. I think that they're, you know, Gaviria is the most exciting young rider in the Peloton right now. And so to be able to see these guys really go for it in in lumpy and flat stages i that's just i, I really want to see that more exciting than egon bernal just a little bit oh, fred I you're know. breaking dane cash's heart yeah, right now you're it, literally tearing it out of his chest more exciting than yempy drucker and uh well yempy's been around michael uh T- mike tunison i know mike tunison's he's a young gun yeah he's an up-and-comer very exciting very exciting rider. um no i think that the tour de suisse is going to tell us a lot about um GC guys, because we have Richie Port there, we have Mika Landa and Nairo, and it's going to really give us a clear picture of where the uh, sprint battle is going to be. What do what do we make about Movistar at Tour de Suisse? We have Landa and we have Nairo. Hoodie, do you think that the results from this race could determine who is leader at the Tour de France? I think I think that decision has been made. I think that on Movistar and most of the teams, they already know who their G, how their GC hierarchy is stacking up for the tour. I think Movistar. I had a conversation with Nzue at the at the last week of the Giro, and he said Nairo was still their number one man, with Mikal Landa kind of right there, almost equal billing. Um, 
they'll both be protected. He also said that uh, Valverde has kind of this Joker wild card uh, spot. They might even take Mark Soler to the tour as well. Mm. So I think uh, Movistar is kind of expecting their little uh, spindly climbers to get kind of beat up in the first half of the tour. So I think that's why they're kind of bringing in Landa and Nairo as kind of co-captains because odds are one of them won't survive the first uh, first half of the tour. Wow. That's kind of... That's what I'm. That's what I'm kind of thinking. That's uh, a lot of teams are thinking that way. Solaire was looking pretty good in the Criterium and Dauphiné as well. He was he was mess, messing around at the front, making some attacks. Yeah, I saw on that penultimate day. I think he had a puncture and was forced to chase and cut back on pretty easily, and then went on the attack. So that guy definitely seems to have some strong legs. Definitely going to crash out on the Roubaix stage. Oh, I know. <laughs> I have such high hopes for Movie Star's trio or quad, quadro or whatever you would call it, four-headed monster, but I just fear that the Sarlacc hiding under the Roubaix uh, <laughs> cobblestones is going to just jump up and just, like, eat Nairo. <laughs> just like, oh, he's gone. Oh, his tour has ended. Be a pretty tasty snack, I'd say. <laughs> You know, on the topic of preparation races of the Tour de Suisse and the Dauphiné. Preparation um, race? Yeah, preparation race. race. <laughs> you know, every year we, we do have this conversation about which one is the better prep and like the uh, role that these races play in teams choosing their final roster for the Tour de France. And I had some interviews, some chats with both riders and team directors at the Tour of California to talk about this very topic. Um, and the, the conversation point is basically, do you put so much emphasis on riders' performances at the Tour de Suisse and the Dauphiné that you stress them out or maybe cause them to peak too soon? Or do you um, announce the tour basically decide the tour team way before June and give the riders a little bit more sense of security, but then perhaps skip out on having someone on your team who's on really good form. Who do you, I don't know. Have you ever, have you talked much to riders and directors about this balancing act that they have to do around June? It is, it is a stressful situation. Not so much for those uh, four or five guys that they know they're going to the tour. You got the GC guys, you have maybe the key sprinters or a few key lieutenants. They know they're going to the tour. But it's those guys that are down on seven, eight, nine, ten spots. They're really on the edge eggshells. They want to go to the tour. And a lot of riders just get into the tour. Starting the tour is kind of a, a, a box they want to check off in their career. I know certain riders that have been trying to get to the career, to get to the tour their whole careers. They've never made it. So there's always that built-in stress of just making the selection. And I think it might work against the team and the long run of the tour because it's just that whole element, that dynamic of, you know, killing myself to make the selection might not have that much left in the gas tank to, to ride all the way into July. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. Let's hear from two team directors. I spoke with Rolf Aldog from Team Dimension Data and Brian Holm about, uh, from Quickstep about this topic. And they have they they agree on some of the on some points, but they do have some differing opinions on sort of the dynamic that you know putting a lot of emphasis on these June races have. So let's hear from these guys. We'll hear from uh, Rolf Aldag first, and then Brian Holmes second. Well, first of all, the beauty of the Tour de France is that they announce uh, the the race route relatively early, um, so you can plan already, you know, quite a while ahead. Because this is on on many other races not the case that. You know, you have a rough idea what the what the you know, the profiles could look like, and then you're caught by surprise, and you know you come to a race and there's no sprint while well, you plan with a sprinter, and so on, so on. So the beauty of the Tour de France, first of all, you have plenty on time to get your head around it, um, how it's going to look like, how it's going to the race, and then going to be, and then you know you have to you have to be clear within the team like what are the goals, like what are our chances, what are the goals. And out of that, um, you know, looking into every 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 individual stage, out of that you're gonna gonna you know see like how do you achieve it. So uh, it's obviously all about winning. So you know what are the best chances and how do you support those best chances? And uh, yeah, so it it literally starts from the moment the team is announced. Uh, the, the, sorry, the, the the road is announced. From that moment on, um, you start thinking thinking who might be the best riders to, to fulfill your dreams. I know that some teams will name a long list, 
uh, maybe 10 or 12 riders who have the potential to make it on the tour. And then based off of their form performance uh, in June or late June, they whittle it down. Is that what you guys do? Yeah, there's kind of like an internal internal long list to give people a heads up. Also, you know, for some it's a, it's, it's a motivational uh, kick to say, well, you know, you are on the long list, so, you know, you better get it right and then you're in. Um, you know, everybody, every rider's dream is to, to do the tour. So, so, of course, it gives you a little bit of, of security also to say, well, okay, it's not really about, like, it, every single race I have to prove myself um, to be able to ride the tour. Um, it, it's, it's a little bit, okay, I'm on the long list and I can focus on the preparation. And then if I'm good enough, I will go. If I'm not good enough, I will not go. So, Brian Holm, what is the, your team's process for choosing the Tour de France team? Oh, it's sort of seeing what you're going for, you know, with, with Fernando. With Fernando, I think you have a fair chance to win a stage win, a stage. So uh, you probably give him a bit of support. And uh, Bob, Bob Jones, he might use a rider also. Then we're using riders. We know we're not movie star team, so we're probably a bit more focused on the flat stages. Do you start with a long team, maybe 10 or 12 guys, and then choose the final team from that selection? Yeah, sort of starting with 14 riders and then cutting down. And uh, now, now one rider list, of course, going to be a bigger challenge and somebody be disappointed because with our troops, we have some good, good, strong riders and, of course, somebody ending be very disappointed with a good reason. And are you looking at Dauphiné and Swiss for that final selection? Everybody's di- different. Me, personal, I think when a top professional rider, I don't, of course, somebody riding very bad is ill. But I wouldn't make a competition in Swiss or Dauphiné between the riders. I think it's better to do going to the limit and then being fresh as Tour de France. If you start the competition race in Dauphiné between the riders, doing best, most stupid breakaway, then I think you kill them already before Tour. I think a good professional has to know before if he's going to the Tour or not, before he starts. And then he can do it, you know, to prepare himself mentally also. Uh, I mean, that's right in the past also when I was riding myself competition race in Tour de Suisse. It's not very useful. Yeah, I mean, Aldag's point that, you know, you know what the tour route looks like months, you know, months and months in advance, which really helps you choose that sort of long list is an interesting point. But I also think that Holm basically saying like, ah, just, you know, you don't want riders to peak too soon. I think that that that's something that factors into it too. And, you know, on the rider's end, like Hoodie said, these guys get stressed out. Um, I talked with two uh, other riders. I talked with Mickey Shar from BMC and Lawson Craddock about this dynamic, and they both agreed with each other. They both didn't like it. They both think that, uh, you know, putting so much emphasis on the Dauphiné and the Tour de Suisse just, it creates a lot of stress. So let's hear from these guys. We'll uh, hear from Shar first and then Lawson Craddock. Well, yeah, the, the last test for the Tour is always Tour de Suisse or Dauphiné. That's where you have to check your shape and where the actual selection is made afterwards. So you got to be ready, got to be fit. But I, yeah, I don't really agree on being on top shape for these two races because there's a lot of riders who are always peaking for those races to make the selection. And then you go into the Tour and you're, yeah, you're, you're behind your peak. So it's actually better when a team makes a selection or like a, a selection of 10, 11 riders who go earlier than uh, these races because then you have more confidence and you can go a bit easier in these two races. Which do you prefer, Tour de Suisse or Dauphiné? That's an easy question. I'm from Switzerland, so Tour de Suisse is definitely my, my favorite. A lot of times you see the Tour de Suisse, the weather can be a little bit bad. It's a, a week later. Uh, does that create any challenges for, uh, you know, when you're riding the Tour, having it being a week later than the Dauphiné? Uh, until last year, it was. Actually, there was less recovery time between Swiss and Tour de France. But this year, 2018, we have a week more between the Tour de Suisse and the Tour. So the Tour starts one week later. I mean, with this more week, I don't think there is any difference because you have enough time to recover. Before, because Tour de Suisse was that hard, a lot of mountains in the Alps, a lot of bad weather, you couldn't really recover until the Tour de France. Or some guys, you know, had struggles to do that. And then 
Dauphiné was preferred. But I think this year, as you see the roster in the Tour de Suisse, it's going to be the race. The it, is it stressful waiting uh, to hear whether the team is going to choose you or not for the Tour? Is that a stressful time? Yeah, then it was a big, big stress. I was, you never knew if you could go or not. It was for sure a, a tense, tense moment, tense phase before, but it was actually nice, a big honor to be there. Lawson Craddock, Team EF Education first. You know, Lawson, you've been in situations before when you're waiting to find out whether you're on a Tour de France team. What's that like? Uh, it's definitely a bit nerve-wracking. Um, I mean, right, 2016, it's my first and only Tour, Tour de France so far, and you, you know, you kind of dream of that moment for really ever since you've been on a bike, and uh, you feel like you've done everything you can. Uh, you know, you, you train your ass off, you work harder than you've ever worked, and then uh, you know, you just you just pray that you know you, you get the call leading into the race, and, and when you do, it's a, it's a special moment, you know. Uh, but I mean, I've said it before, that, that's the easy part is, is getting on the team. The hard part is actually racing. What um, emphasis do you put on either the Dauphiné or the Tour de Suisse when you're trying to make uh, that squad? Yeah, it's, it's it's a bit funny because you know it's like even this year the Dauphiné is almost three weeks ahead of time. You know, and a lot can change. In, in three weeks, uh, I mean, you can go from top of the world to the very bottom, and you know, vice versa as well. So, but you know, it's kind of like your last last shot to prove yourself in a race uh, that you that you deserve a selection. So, obviously, you have to, you have to go in and, and, and prove that you're riding well, and also kind of show the right right mentality and right mindset that you you know you can be a vital asset to the team. Which one do you like more, Dauphiné or? With. Uh, this year I'm, I'm, um, I'm on Dauphiné, so I'm, look, I'm re- really looking forward to that. Um, I didn't, I haven't, I, I did Swiss my Neo Pro season, Dauphiné my second year. Uh, so they're, they're both different races. They're kind of, you know, Swiss is. Uh, I don't want to say a bit more laid back, but you know, a bit more kind of smooth as far as the terrain goes the roads are really nice it's a beautiful country and you know, it's a fun race and Dauphiné is a bit more you know kind of uh, traditional Euro- European style racing so they're, they're both great races in their own um, own way and you know both really fun to take a part of I think that maybe Velo News needs to have some type of like Dauphiné Tour de Suisse type um, I don't know like warm up race that helps us decide Ooh. who's going to go to the tour. Dirty Kansas probably. Yeah, it'd probably be like Dirty Kansas or Tulsa Tough. Or yeah, that'd be. Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, Spencer, you want to go to the tour? Well, go to Tulsa Tough. Break my collarbone in half. <laughs> yeah, and uh, no, this is from a reporting perspective. I want you to get all the stories oh, from Tulsa Tough. I would do that. I think Tulsa Tough's awesome. I'd love to go someday. Yeah, maybe the long list next year, because you know, hoodie, you're our protected writer. You're our protected reporter. So yeah. you will be going to the tour. <laughs> But between uh, Dane and Spencer and Chris Case, hmm. um, I'll send you all, you know, all three of you to some like terrible criterium somewhere. Hey, be nice. No, Tulsa Tough is not a terrible criterium. Right. It's an amazing one. Yeah. I'm talking more about like... The local office park crit? Yeah, local office park okay. crit and whoever can come with, with the, the best in-depth reporting. Dig up some good stories on the master scene. Yeah. Mm, that'd be nice. That will determine who makes it out of the tour really roster. Really good stuff. Uh, well, Hoodie, what, you know, we're, we're a couple of weeks out, you know, as, as we're here in sort of mid-June, what is the storyline that you're most excited about heading into the Tour de France? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. The, the, the enigma out of the Dauphiné was Nibali. He was the kind of the nowhere man during the whole race. I'm trying to find out if he was kind of sick or if he was just playing uh, bluff or it's just Nibali being Nibali and just kind of riding into his form because he's kind of had, you know, he's the smart guy. He knows that what counts is being hitting his peak in that last week of the grand tour. So, I mean, Nibali was, I think, uh, 25th on GC at the Dauphiné. He was not in the frame. I never even saw Nibali during the whole race watching the decisive parts of the, of the stages. So that's the big question mark for me. You know, what's Nibali doing? Is he, is he kind of just, being a shark, you know, waiting for the, to pounce there for the kill when it counts, or is there kind of a crisis there? We, I just don't know that story yet. Um, another thing is it'll be interesting to see kind of where these hitters come out of these two races because typically uh, the Tour de Suisse, the only guy that's won the Tour de Suisse, I think, in the last 20 years and has won the Tour de France 
was our friend Lance Armstrong back in 2001. Never heard of the uh, guy. <laughs> never heard of the guy. And the last four of the last six winners has come out of the Dauphiné, uh, of course, with Wiggins and Froome on the trot. So it'll be interesting. The whole dynamic is, you know, there's a lot of big question marks coming into this Tour de France. And, of course, the biggest question mark of them all is Mr. Froome. Will he be there? What kind of form will he be in? And will the French just uh, throw baguettes and uh, cheese packets and pieces of saucisson at him for the entire month across France? Oh, he does <laughs> tend to bonk late in races. He does tend to bonk late in races. So that could be an advantage if he got that kind of support from the Well, crowd. knowing the French and their history of, I, I think someone threw urine at him once. If he's just getting bombarded by uh, baguette and fromage, I'd say that's an upgrade. Big I, upgrade. Yeah. Major upgrade. Sweet. All right. This is good. Major <laughs> upgrade. And Hoodie, you know, I've been thinking about Nibbly too. I think he's... He's dangerous. He's looking dangerous. He's just timing that peak perfectly. Doesn't he? Why does Nibali need to win the Dauphiné? He doesn't need to win the Dauphiné. Yeah. He, he'll be ready for the tour. All right, Hoodie. Well, thanks for checking in with us, and we'll let you get back to your buildup for the Tour de France. Uh, you know, be sure to have a good taper, a good rest before the tour. I'll take that into account. <laughs> See you next Thank time. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. Today's episode is also brought to us by our good friends at Fazari Bicycles. Spencer, you've been racing the Epic Rides mountain bike races this year. In fact, you have the Carson City round coming up this weekend. Yeah, Tell me about right. that uh, sweet ride you've been riding on for these yeah, races. Yeah, yeah, Fred. I just just packed it up, actually. Packed up my old Signal Peak. It's the Fazari's, Fazari's new race bike, cross-country race bike, but it's got a little more travel than most. It's got 120 millimeters front and rear so it's actually really fun to ride but still super efficient super light and um you know the cool thing about fazari is and i keep talking to people about it, they don't realize this but they've been around for 12 years they've been doing direct to consumer this whole time they've got a great system for making sure the bike is perfect for you it's custom built for you they've got a love it or return it guarantee and uh yeah the bike rips it's uh it's not the thing that's holding me back in these races i'll tell you that much fred it, it has to do more with the pilot pilot error usually uh, the love it or return it guarantee is something i'd like to see applied to so many different consumer products right stuff i buy at the store all the time Ooh, yeah. these strawberries Ooh, not ripe yet don't love it want to return it <laughs> Um, Fizari has been great. Um, they're going to be helping you out at, Car at Carson City. What, what can we expect from the course out there? Yeah, it's a climber's course. It gets all the way up to like 8,600 feet above sea level, really high altitude, and I think well over 6,000 feet of climbing for 50-mile course. Uh, but I don't think it'll be quite as gnarly and technical as Grand Junction. Grand Junction, of course, you know, just those rocky trails, the lunch loops trails. And, uh, I like that type of riding, but um, this should be a fun one too because it takes you up to the Flume Trail up above Lake Tahoe. And um, I've been up there a long time ago. I did a ride up there, and man, it is scenic beyond belief. It's just so beautiful up there. So looking forward to getting back to Tahoe. Well, we'll be seeing you on your Fazari at Carson City on VeloNews.com. Let's get back to the show. Okay, we're now joined by Dan Cavallari tech editor here at Vela News. And Dan, I just want to say that this story that came across our airwaves today is the closest thing I feel like I've seen to an April Fool's story that wasn't an April Fool's story. Or like an Onion article. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. this being the speed gel story, Lotto Sudal using um, gel that makes you go faster. Wait, on... they eat it? Yeah. No. no oh, no. what do they do with it? Not fit for human consumption. No, All right, Dan, what do we not. need to know about speed gel? What is this stuff? <laughs> uh, it is not an onion headline. It is close. Uh, it is gel that you apply to your legs and the gel has little balls in it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, come on. Keep All it. Right. Keep it adult. Keep um, it adult. I just needed that one. <laughs> that's, like, I'm good now. Yeah, that's a I'll big ask fine. with this crew. I'll be fine now. <laughs> I just needed it at the moment. All right, why are there balls in the gel? Yeah. Well, it, it, it sort of plays off the same theory uh, as aerodynamic clothing, which when air flows over your body or really over a bike, anything like that, the air flows and then it, it wants to go behind your body. And what that does is that causes eddies of air. 
and that in turn produces drag. So the whole idea here is to reduce drag. So those little balls in the gel make the air separate from your leg earlier, so that prevents those eddies. So in theory, that should uh, reduce drag. We've seen the same thing in things like aero socks. That's why you see in TTs, they're always wearing those really tall socks. Those are aerodynamic socks. They have the same sort of texturing idea behind it so that you know you, you, it separates the airflow before it causes drag. Uh, the problem is those high socks are actually illegal, uh, vaguely. Uh, it, it's supposed to not extend uh, more than halfway up your leg. So, so like your knee. Yeah, well, we think, maybe. It could be, uh, could be higher than that, could be lower than that. Halfway up your leg, I mean. Yeah. Where's your leg? Yeah, you know. I mean, it's, you could have some very strange leg proportions, yes. I guess, yeah. but I would imagine it's your knee, right? Well, that, that, the UCI rules is kind of kind of unclear on that. Uh, check out Villain News pretty soon. Uh, yeah, we've on that. got a story coming out from you on that, Dan. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's get the quick primer, though, because this is re- it's related. It's just like these ways that teams are finding to kind of stretch the rules a little, mm-hmm. get a little extra edge. You know, nowadays with the time trial, everybody's looking for all the little technical mm-hmm. things they can do to just go slightly faster. Right. The tech has far exceeded the rules at this point, and I think that's where we're running into issues. We saw this last year at the Tour de France when Team Sky was running a special skin suit that had a dimpled texture on it. And it's the same principle. They want to make that air separate from their bodies sooner so that it doesn't induce drag. And that's what this gel is all about. And so the problem with this gel is that it's not really addressed in the equipment regulations uh, it's because it's not technical technically equipment. So there was this sort of panic, like, how do we, how do we regulate this? Because it's really doing the same thing as those high socks do or as the, the skin suit does. So I think we're going to see um, some updates to this rule pretty soon. But the skin suit's allowed. Yes. They're letting them race in it. That's not, they haven't banned the skin suit itself. There are some other skin suits too, I think, that, mm-hmm. that have a similar texture. I think yes. you actually, you tested uh, one of the um, one of the suits that the Movistar guys wear from Madura, yes. didn't you? Correct, yes. And the idea here is uh, the, the rules are written very vaguely, and I think that's done on purpose so that uh, the UCI can make their own uh, rulings on it on a case-by-case basis. And in the case of the skin suits, they were allowed because the, the rule states that you're not supposed to add something to a fabric that can affect that can increase aerodynamic performance. However, Team uh, Castelli, who made the Team Sky skin suit, their argument was it's not added to, it's impregnated into. So it's actually part of the fabric. So there's ways around these rules that are equally vague because the rules themselves are very vague. Oh, man. This just seems like another instance of creating more rules to create more headaches. It's like, I know, let's legislate the fun out of cycling uh, by creating rules around new technology that could make make people go faster. Here's a question, Dan. What do you think is faster, wearing an aerodynamic skin suit or being totally nude but covered in speedball gel? Well, so the the latter, I think, would be faster simply because nobody wants to look at that. You could do whatever you want. You could cheat as much as you want because nobody wants to see that. Yeah, it's a diversion. (laughs) Take a shortcut. I like that. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to test that theory, and I don't think our readers want me to test that theory. (laughs) Here's a more realistic hack. Just don't shave your legs Mm. because wouldn't that disrupt the airflow? Ooh, good, good call. Well, I got to figure... Or maybe a little stubble. Maybe you, like, just do a real, like, really detailed double-blind test where you just, like, have all the different stubble lengths, mm. and you figure out which stubble length is the fastest. Oh, uh, actually, 0.75 centimeters, that's when you really get the yeah. best laminar mm. flow, guys. Yeah, but I think our, 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 our poor friends on the, very, the various Italian teams might be at a disadvantage yeah, there. They're very hairy. But think of the endorsement opportunities. You know, the whole, like, you know, Norelco, you could get the special, like, uh, beard trimmer type situation mm. where you get the, the correct uh, length of... Um, and the trimmer away from the skin. You know what I'm shave, talking about. Shave a logo yeah, into you, you got a nice big beard, Fred. You know what I'm talking about. Either way, this story is the latest chapter in an ongoing book about cycling trying to create rules around new technology that seeps in to make people go faster. And cycling trying to pre- pre- preserve traditionalism. Um, I think that some people at the in the high ups at the UCI have this dystopian view that someday all the technology coming into cycling will mean that people are racing on futuristic motorcycles with aerodynamic wingsuits and they don't want that. They still want a bike to look like a bike from 1972 and they still want the, you know, old romanticism of guys in like wool jerseys and stuff like that. Maybe less of the amphetamines though. Yeah, (laughs) maybe, maybe. Or 
up to their discretion. It, but it creates, it does create this greater conversation of like, well, who gets to decide that? Mm -hmm. Like, who really is in charge of what cyclists look like when they're racing? Okay, the UCI says you can't have this gel on your legs. You can't wear socks up to your knees and look like some Ironman participant when you're racing. Like, is that really to, you know, create, you know, prevent an unfair advantage? Or is that to like, I don't know, preserve some weird sartorial style thing that this that cycling just likes well, i think they're i think they're like any other political body in a sense in that they're trying to regulate something that really cannot be specifically regulated i mean you're you're talking about a governing body you're not talking about aerodynamicists right and so you know one of the sticking points about this whole gel conversation and aerodynamic socks is that these socks and these gels are only advantageous at certain speeds and so you're still taking a gamble. In fact, it can actually be slower if you use these things and you're not hitting the speed that you need to hit. So, you know, when it comes to regulating things like this, um, I think what you're seeing is an attempt to level a playing field that is so nuanced and so strange and so uh, subject to current technologies that really the UCI has been handed a pretty impossible job. So it's not surprising to me that the rules are vague because these technologies are changing literally by the minute. And how do you check for the gel too? Do you have to like go up and rub each rider's leg to feel, to feel for the texture? Huh? What if it's cold and they're wearing Embro? Ooh. And it's like, no, nah, man. Speed Embro. This is my uh, Embro. Yeah. This and the Spanish guys would need Embro like up to like 85 degrees yeah. probably. I, I think mean, the they, balls they, are a giveaway though. Little, yeah. Dotted balls on your leg. You, balls are usually a giveaway. Yep. <laughs> no. These are microscopic balls, right? Or do they, can you actually see the balls? I don't know. I've never seen them up close. So we got to get sure. some of this stuff in for testing. Yeah, Let's think, order up a tube of this stuff. I need, yeah, I need what if this was just an elaborate ruse by the manufacturers of this speed ball gel to like sell to every uh, age group cyclist yeah. in the yeah. world? And by getting it banned by the UCI and getting the headlines. Like training masks for CrossFit or something like that. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it is a very interesting story. And if anyone has access to uh, tubs of this stuff, please send some That and some outpacing shampoo. I've been wanting yeah. to try that, too. Uh, just go to Tour California. They hand it out. Oh, caffeine, caffeinated, caffeinated shampoo. shampoo. How, how has that not been banned yet? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I say we compare that. We compare this conversation to the one we had last week about the dirty Kanza, where people are hemming and hawing about, you know, the introduction of like arrow bars and road tactics, mm -hmm. and the owners of the race are just like, bah, whatever, we don't care. <laughs> and then you compare that to pro cycling, where it's like, hey, we have this gel that we rub on our legs, and maybe possibly it disrupts the wind flow to make us, you know, marginal gain, marginal gain a little bit faster. And they're like, none, you cannot do that. You uh, outlaw your yeah. gel. So I guess that's just the dynamic that our sport. Protecting, protecting the sport, man. Protect that sport. Yeah. Well, we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on velonews.com. Subscribe to the Velonews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Velonews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Velonews podcast is produced by Velonews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Velonews podcast are those of the individual and as always we leave you with the brooklyn boogaloo blowout playing the bernard purdy classic soul drums 